Genesis chapter number 6. According to the Pew Research uh, Firm, the two most well-known Bible stories in the world are the birth of Christ and Noah's flood. The biggest problem with Noah's flood being so kind of well-known is we have turned it into a, a nursery rhyme almost. We see, you know, you ever go to a church and you look in the nursery and there's a mural of Noah's Ark there and it's just this pretty little boat with a rainbow over top and a chubby little Noah and Miss Noah smiling and, you know, the animals all smiling. It looks so peaceful and pretty and perfect. That's nothing like this story was. Uh, This is one of the most tragic stories in all of human history and we make it a cute story or a cute painting or a cute storybook for our kids. And we do that with a lot of things. You ever really listen to the words of Rockabye Baby? This song we sing to our kids that are trying to rock them to sleep. Rockabye Baby in the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. That's fine. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. And Dad woke up, baby. So we're singing our kids in a sweet little voice. I hope you fall out of a tree. I don't know where these things come from, but we make up these weird things that are sweet little kid stories, and Noah's Ark is one of them, and it's not. It is a tragic story. Now, it's an incredible story, but it's not one we should really tell our kids right before they go to bed if we're going to tell it correctly. It's a story of how God sent a worldwide flood to kill every living creature on the planet. The story of Noah's Ark, it brings up a lot of questions. Some of the questions are good. Some of the questions are not so good. Like, how could God, if he's a loving God, kill everything on earth except those that were inside the ark? Did God really flood the entire world? Or did God just flood the known world at the time? Because a lot of people look at the world today and say there's no way that the whole world could be covered with water. So that's, that's an interesting question that I really got into this week and I studied and I had all... But we're not going to get on that rabbit trail to prove how that happened because I think it's awesome. I think it's incredible, but we're going to stay here. If you want to know, see me after church and we'll talk about Rodina and Pangea and all the cool stuff that I found out by studying the scriptures and other stuff. All right, but anyway... So did God really flood the entire world or just the known world? How, how could two of every kind of animal fit inside the ark? What about dinosaurs? What about all these other things? And okay, if, if God had two of everything on the earth to be saved so that he could restart creation, whose idea was it to bring the cats? That was stupid. Or what about the the mosquitoes? Who said, let's bring mosquitoes or dung beetles or all these other things? They were like, why do we have these things? Why did he allow those to be on the ark? And it brings up some questions like that. Okay, what did they eat while they were on the ark? Not only did he have to have two of every kind, he had to have enough food for every animal and the humans to eat. When they eat, they produce poop. Where did all the poop go? These are some some questions that I have heard people ask me and ask other people about the ark. But none of those things are the main focus of the story. The story of the flood is about God starting over with creation 
because everything had gone terribly wrong. The flood was God starting over, but he knows that it's going to fail. Not because God failed, but because mankind failed. It fails because God was trying to demonstrate something through the flood about us, the human race. So we're going to look at those this morning. But first, let's look at Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start in verse number 5. <clears throat> Genesis 6, starting in verse number 5. The Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I should have made them. So in this, in this passage of scripture, we see a few things. Number one, we see it grieved, God was grieved by our sin. God was grieved by our sin. When people hear stories of God's judgment, it bothers them. Anybody else read, read some stories like, like the story here in the total flow where God wiped out everybody except Noah and his eight sons? And we see at the end of the story, Noah and his, eight, and his, uh, Noah and his three sons weren't that great. But he kills everybody else, every man, every woman, every child, every baby, everything. Or you, you see stories like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God just wipes out this city and destroys this entire valley. And he, he lets Lot go free. Lot, who Lot was not a good guy. He offers up his daughters to an angry mob because they wanted to really violate these two angels. He said, hey, don't violate them. Take my two daughters. What kind of a dad does that? And then he has to be dragged out of the city by these angels and God's destroying the city and Lot's wife gets turned into a pillar of salt. Why? Because she turned around. You ever look at that and think, man, that's just, that's harsh. It's a little hard on, on Lot's wife. All she, Lot should have been turned into a pillar of salt. You know, he was the one that's offered up his daughters. He's the one that sins with them and just a day or two later, but he's called just Lot. And we read these things, we read after, the, after Moses goes up on Mount Sion, he comes down and he's, he's telling the people who had broken the Ten Commandments, which, if you understand the story, they didn't know them yet. Because Moses is getting them from God. So they didn't have the Ten Commandments, but he comes down and they're breaking all the Ten Commandments they didn't know about. And what does God do? He opens up the earth and swallows several hundred of them straight to hell. Read this like, man... It's harsh. Anybody else have trouble with that, or am I the only one that's going to be honest here? You look at it, you're like, some of these things, they kind of bother me. It seems a little difficult, and especially unbelievers, when they read these stories, they're like, why, why would a loving God do those things? Here's what we have to understand. When God, in these stories, and we'll get into why he doesn't do it now, why when you Sin against God, the earth doesn't open up and swallow you straight to hell. It's like, whoo, thank Lord, we're in the time of grace. But 
when we, we see these things, we've got to understand when God passes judgment and he judges sin, it may bother us how he does it, but it bothers him more that he has to do it. God is heartbroken over what he has to do to the world. When the Bible says that God saw the wickedness of man, it says he repented of the fact that he had made man. Now, the word in the Hebrew literally means to be heartbroken over. But there's, the word is important, but also the way the word is used is important as well. It doesn't say, the way it reads originally, God wasn't heartbroken over the fact he had made man, he was heartbroken over what man had become. He was heartbroken over what man and our sin had done to his creation. It's the same word used in Isaiah 54, 6. The Bible says, For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. That's the same word used as, as repenteth there. And the wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith the Lord. So here's that word in that verse is used to describe a woman and how she feels when she's abandoned by her husband for no reason. Imagine a, a young woman. She's going through life, she's doing her life, whatever she's doing, and she, she meets a man. They start dating, they fall in love. He asks her to marry him. Baby, I'll, I'll love you forever. I'll take care of you, I'll protect you, I'll, I'll cherish you. This, this man who, who said he's going to do everything for her, he's going to be with her until death, he's going to cherish her and protect her, and he made her feel loved, and he made her feel special, and he said, I'm never going to leave you. She gets up on her wedding day, gets on the wedding dress, goes to the church, and he's left. He's run off. She has no idea why. He's abandoned her. That's how God felt about our sin. He felt rejected. He felt hurt. He felt heartbroken because of our sin. He felt betrayed. Sin has consumed the human race like a disease. Bible says at this time, every man's thoughts were on evil all the time. Look at verse number 11. It says, in all the days... Nope, wrong chapter. Verse number 11 it says, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. The world was just a corrupt, violent place. The way this is, is worded, the strong would use their power to oppress the weak. The world also, the Bible says, was full of sexual perversion. Look at Genesis 6, verse 2. So that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And then verse 4, that they took them, the wives of all which they chose. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them. Now, there's a lot of debate about what the sons of, of God are here. And 
Again, I'd love to get into it because I think it's awesome and cool, and, but we're not, we're not going to go down that, that, that road. Some people think that when it talks about the sons of God here, it's talking about angels because the only other time that that word, the sons of God, in the Hebrew is used is in the book of Job when it talks about the sons of God coming before God. It's talking about angels coming before God. So some people say, man, these are angels who fell with Satan. And if you know your Bible, you know there is a group of angels that did something so terrible that God has cast them into the bottomless pit and they're there now waiting for judgment. They're never going to get out. But these angels didn't say, well, what did they do? I don't know. I mean, Satan rebelled against God and all he did was get cast out. Now he's going to be destroyed one day, but right now he's free to do whatever he wants to do. Third of the angels fell with them. Most of them, they fell against God. They were cast out of heaven. They are going to be judged one day, but right now they're not. Right now they're, they're free to do whatever they want to do. But these angels did something so bad. God said, I got to lock them up until judgment day. So I don't know what they did. Maybe these angels were the sons of God who, who went in, you know, they had relationships with women and now they, they had children because these giants, others think that this refers to men of God that fell into ungodliness with wicked women and eventually became sexually perverse. Whatever it really means, God saw the state of the world and he decided to put a stop to it by flooding the world to cleanse it of the problem. Now, there's an interesting word play here in the Hebrew. In verses 12 through 13, the word that, used, that is used to describe human wickedness is the Hebrew word marshit. It literally means destroyer. Humanity had become destroyers of God's creation, destroying everything that was good. The same word is used to describe what God does to the earth. God destroys the destroyers. And a lot of people are bothered by that. A loving God shouldn't do that. A loving God shouldn't wipe out all of creation just because things got a little out of hand. He should just, you know, love means letting things go. Love means kind of just, you know, I hate it, but, I, you know, I love them too much to do anything about that. There's a, a theologian, Myloshoff Wolf. He's a theologian. He lived the creation genocide. He has a lot of opinions about this belief that a loving God doesn't judge because judgment isn't loving. He said that the only people who believe that are ones who grew up in the suburbs and never really experienced injustice. He said they've never seen their wives, their mothers, their daughters raped and murdered. They've never seen their sons and their husbands and their fathers killed. He says when you watch your parents have their throats slit, the only thing keeping you sane is knowing that God will bring judgment one day. He says, believing that God is a God of judgment, it gives you peace. Because if you think God is all love and no judgment, when you're wronged, you try to take matters into your own hands. Because God's not going to judge them. Judge, God's not going to punish them. So I have to. But knowing that one day he will pass perfect judgment, he says, you can lay down your sword 
and be free from hatred and bitterness. Too many people have a lopsided view of God. Yes, yes, God is love. In the New Testament, God uses one word to describe himself, and it's love. God says, my essence is love, but his love doesn't mean he doesn't pass judgment. His love doesn't mean that he doesn't punish sin when he sees it because his righteousness demands he deal with sin. But he loves them. But his righteousness, his holiness demands he deals with it. So too many have a lopsided view of God. That's why we struggle with stories like theirs. But we need to understand God, God loves his creation. God loves humanity. But there's something God loves more than his creation and his humanity. And, and humanity. What he loves more than anything is his glory in the universe. He loves creation too much to let it persist in wickedness. He loves his glory and justice too much to allow wickedness and sin to go unpunished. The sin of man grieves God because of what it does, his creation and his glory. He hates how sin has devastated us, so he decided to do something about it. God was grieved by our sin. Here's the second thing. God showed mercy despite our sin. Look at chapter 6 again. Look at verse number 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation. And Noah walked with God. What's so special about Noah? I mean, the whole world's a mess. The whole world's just, to, just terrible. And really, you look back at the, the genealogies here, you know, it hadn't been long since Enoch walked with God and was not. Methuselah's still around, and Methuselah was a godly man, you know, grandfather of Noah. Methuselah, he didn't die until the flood came. You know, his name means when, it, when he's gone, it shall come. So did he die in the flood or did he die and then the flood? We don't know. But he's around. There's some real good godly people around. So what made Noah so special? Nothing. He was called just and righteous, and it said that he walked with God. But that doesn't mean he didn't have sin in his heart. He did. We'll see, after the flood, his sin comes out very clearly. He had plenty. He was considered righteous because he believed God. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned about things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to save his family by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's righteousness was the righteousness that he received through faith. It isn't Righteousness that comes from being perfect, but it is the righteousness that comes as a gift from God that we receive when we believe him by faith. See, God didn't save Noah because he was righteous. Noah became righteous because he believed God. Because he put his faith in God and accepted his gift of salvation. See, Noah could have just believed God. Well, God's going to flood the world and done nothing about it. He had to believe God and act on that belief by building the ark 
in an area where it had never rained. There's never been a flood. So what's he preparing for? You look at a map of where it was built. Again, not a map of today's world, a map of the world then. We'll get into that. You'll see he was in the middle of, the, of nowhere. There was no sea nearby. He wasn't on the seashore. He was in a mountain area. He's in a mountain area building a boat, a huge boat, almost 500 feet long to put, you know, five levels to put all these animals in. No one's helping. Everybody's mocking him. He believed God, but he acted on that belief. He became righteous because he, he believed God and accepted his gift. That's the same way that we become righteous today. We don't earn our righteousness because we can't. No matter what you do, you can come to church every Sunday the doors are open. You can tithe every time that we're here. You can give a 50% of your income to the church. You can do everything right. You can read your Bible every day. You can pray three hours a day. You can do everything right, but you can never earn righteousness. Righteousness is, is given to us as a gift when we understand we were sinners condemned to hell with no way out, but God came as Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, not for his sins, for our sins, had the wrath of God for my sins and your sins poured out on him. He died, was buried, and rose again three days later to reconcile us to God the Father. We put our faith and trust in that. The Bible says we are given the righteousness of God. Again, not our righteousness, his righteousness. We get it just like Noah got it, by believing God. Noah sets out in faith and obedience and surrender to build the ark, one of the greatest feats of faith in human history. He's building a boat for a flood the world hasn't seen. He's trusting that God's going to do something that has never been done before. He lives, in, like I said, he lives in a mountainous region and he builds a boat over 500 foot long and it takes him 120 years to finish it. But Noah endured. Noah kept going. How many of y'all, given a task, to do something impossible and seemingly stupid. And you do it for 120 years with nobody helping you, everybody mocking you. It never, it's not like Noah started building it and the water started rising slowly. He's like, oh, see, I'm right. No, he had nothing. He had no idea that God was going to keep his word until it was over. And then they're, they're shutting the ark and you read it. They were in the ark for seven days before the flood comes. How bad could he have, must he have felt? He goes in, God shuts the door for seven days. They're like, I don't know. People outside going, hey, where's the flood, Noah? But the seventh day came. The world opened up, the heavens opened up, and the world just flooded. But for 120 years, he never, he never saw any proof that was going to happen. He never saw any proof that God was going to do it. He just believed and stayed faithful to do it. He was ridiculed for his faith, but he just kept going. You know, faith isn't just saying yes initially, but it's following through with walking with God. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard and the entire world is against you. And that's where we are now. Look, the world ridicules believers. It's hard to be a true believer of Christ. Too many people, they say yes to God initially 
They accept his gift of salvation. They'll get baptized. They'll join a church maybe. They'll get involved for a while. But then stuff gets hard. Life gets hard. People start, why are you giving up your Sunday morning to go to that church? And you, you can sleep in if you wanted to. Why, why are you giving 10% of your income to that church? You need that money yourself. And so people start mocking you or ridiculing. It gets hard. And so we, we give up. We stop. It doesn't matter if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. It matters if you're living your life for him now. Now, not for salvation. I'm not saying that if you know someone who accepted Christ as their Savior, got baptized, and then they got out of the church, that they're going to hell. No. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior by faith, through, you know, through grace by faith, you believed he came and died for you and you truly put your faith in him and you said, I'm going to accept his gift of salvation, you are going to heaven one day and there's nothing anybody can do about it. But you won't have a life that matters for eternity. And I'm going to be honest with you, that is why true evangelical Christianity struggles so hard and other false religions don't. Look, even during this whole coronavirus pandemic, the kingdom halls, the Jehovah's Witness churches, they've had to shut down too. They've stopped meeting in person. But you can call in on Sunday morning and listen to a message. You can watch it online and watch a message. And I've seen the research. 80% of Jehovah's Witnesses who are part of a congregation every Sunday morning call in or listen online to a message that's given to them on Sunday from some guy somewhere in the world. You know how many believers tune into their church, their church, and watch their church on Sunday morning who aren't here on Sunday morning? 15%. Why do the JWs got it? Why do they do it so much better than us? Because they're told if you don't do it, you're going to hell or the grave. Same thing. If you don't tune in, if you don't watch the message, if you don't start, you know, giving to the, to the organization, if you don't try to spread their false message, if you don't do that, then when you die, you go to hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. So you got to work to earn it. Same thing with, with Mormons and Muslims. And they are so much better at getting people involved because they have to. And here we are as evangelical Christians teaching the truth. Accept God as your Savior, and you're, you're in, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. So what do people do? They accept this gift. They're mean. I'm not saying they're not sincere. They're sincere. They're on board. But then life gets hard, and following God gets hard, and it's easy just to say, I'll just stay home and watch it, and they don't. I'll read my Bible, and they don't. And eventually, they just, they're away from God. They're still going to heaven, but they don't have anything that matters for eternity. They're not living for God. See, God wants us to serve him and live for him and worship him and study about him and pray to him because we love him, not because we have to. We've had a lot, we, you know, this in our growth group, we've been studying, of course, a lot of the creation. We had some good discussion in our teen growth group. You know, Connor, who always asks the best, but sometimes most annoying questions. Why did God... If he, if, the, if he even thought Adam and Eve would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why did he make it so easy for them? Why did he put it in the garden? Why did he put it somewhere they couldn't get to it? Because God wants us to choose him. Not because we have to, but because we love him. And we, we want to be with him. So he gave them the choice. Now they chose wrong, and because of that, we all suffer. 
But we should, look to, should you know, be faithful to church and faithful to our offerings and faithful to reading our Bible and faithful to growth group and faithful to serving the community. Not because we have to do it to keep God happy, but because he did for us what we could never do. He lived a perfect life, died in our place and rose again to pay for our sin. And because we love him, we should want to serve him. I have no idea. That's not in my notes, so i got to find where I was. All right. <clears throat> Eventually, Noah finishes and God calls the animals and calls everyone to enter the ark. And then Noah and his family enters and God shuts the door. Look at, uh, again, Genesis 6, certain verse 13. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come, therefore, before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth and make thee an ark of gopher wood and room shalt thou make in the ark and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits, and a window shalt thou put in the ark and a cubit. Shalt thou finish it above and the door of the ark shalt thou set on the side thereof with lower, second, and third stories thou to make it. Uh, I think I put the wrong verse over here. Um, anyway, so they build the ark, they go in, and God shuts the door, and the flood comes. Uh, verse 11, the earth also, nope, see, I wrote the wrong verses down. Uh, verse 19, and everything of the earth, uh, two of Shatel, oh, I know what it is. It's chapter 7, not chapter 6. My bad. Y'all could have said something, because y'all are looking at it on the screen. And y'all like, what's he reading? All right, uh, chapter 7, verse 13. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the sons of Noah and Noah's wives and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. And they and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind and every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two, and of, all, uh, two of all flesh, wherein is the breadth of life. And they went in. And male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So they go into the, the ark, God shuts the door, and the flood comes. And it's not just rain. You study it, the Bible says the earth opened up and waters came from the deep, and just it was like earthquakes and tsunamis and all. How many of y'all have seen the movie uh, 2012? Anybody seen it? It was a long time ago. 2012? Okay. You don't need to watch more movies. It's about the Maya, you know, the Mayan calendar ends on 2012. And they thought, oh, well, since the Mayan calendar ended on 2012, the world must end. Not thinking, well, I guess the Mayan calendar maker died before he could make anything else. But the whole movie is the whole world shifts and kind of the continents divide and all kinds of floods and tsunamis. And that's kind of what happened. Just the whole world just came apart. Waters came from underneath, waters came from up top, and it just flooded the entire world. The world opens up, the rain pours down, and everyone outside the ark, and every creature outside the ark begins to panic. And here's where it gets not child-friendly for a nursery rhyme. They who were around the ark, the floods start coming, they run to the ark. Because they, they want safety now. Can you imagine being Noah and his family inside the ark, hearing people bang on the side? You know, let us in. Or just take my baby. Just save my children. Help me. And the, they keep getting louder and louder until eventually they, it stops. Because they're all dead. 
That's why if you study the dimensions of the ark, there was one window, and it looked up. God didn't want them seeing that. But it's a terrible, terrible story. Men, women, children, they all panic, they suffer, and they drown in the flood. And that doesn't seem merciful, but it is. God spared Noah and his family, and in doing so, he saves humanity and keeps the promise he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, he, he can't, you know, you say, well, God could have just wiped out humanity and been done with it. He really couldn't because he promised he wouldn't. So he couldn't just say, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going to flood them and kill them all. Because he promised, and God has to keep his word. So he's merciful in sparing Noah and his family so he can keep the promise of a redeemer. The floods come, Noah and his family and all the animals stay inside for almost a year. And then they exit and they end up landing on Mount Ararat. But here's the third thing we notice. God started over because of our sin. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. So you got the right chapter now. So I'm not reading a verse that makes no sense to y'all. <clears throat> it says, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Let's skip down to chapter 9, verse number 12. And God said... This is a token of the covenant which I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and that shall be a token for a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth, and the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, uh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy the flesh. So with these eight people and two of every kind, God starts creation over. And there's two reasons for doing this. And here's what they are. The first reason God does this is God cares for creation. The covenant that God makes here is not just between God and Noah or God and humanity. It's between God and creation. He says, I am no longer going to destroy the world, my creation, because of what man does to it. I'm going to protect creation. God cares about humanity, but he also cares about his creation. Whenever God makes a covenant, he is making a covenant to save the person or the thing he's making a covenant with. So God is making a covenant with creation to save creation. But save them from what? Save them from the sin of man. Again, in Genesis 20, 22, God says that man was the one who corrupted the earth. Then look, in, look at what Paul says in Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. It says... Uh, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. 
Then skip down to verse 21. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption to the glorious liberty of the children of God. Nature is waiting for God to restore everything to its original state just like we are. Psalms 19 tells us that everything in creation has the purpose of declaring the glory of God. And our sin destroyed that. The Bible tells us that the world isn't a trash heap. It's not evil. So we as believers shouldn't treat it that way. Here, what are you saying? You shouldn't be a litter bug. We should take care of God's creation. You know, because I've heard a lot of believers say, well, you know, God's going to destroy this world anyway and make a new one, so what's the point? Who, who cares? God cares. Because God loves his creation. We should do everything. Now, I'm not saying, you know, go all tree hugger. Get everybody get, you know, start driving electric. Look, if you can afford an electric car and don't mind driving, if you can afford a Tesla, Man, more power to you. Please see me after church. I got some things we got to talk about. But if you can afford an electric car and you don't mind driving an electric car, drive an electric car. If you want to get solar panels on your house to help lower your bill and help, do that. I'm not saying you got to go crazy, but look, let's just be some, some decent stewards of God's creation. See trash, pick it up. Don't dump your motor oil down the drain. Let's do what we can to take care of God's creation because God loves his creation and his creation expresses the glory of God. So we see that God cares for creation, but secondly, we see that God values human life. Look at verse number five. And surely, chapter nine, and surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoso uh, sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. The value that you place on something shows, is shown by the price that you'll pay for it. You know, several, oh, probably 20 years ago now, who, y'all remember the Beanie Baby craze? People would spend, I mean, just stupid money on Beanie Babies, trying to collect the rare Beanie Babies. And look, some of them made a lot of money after the fact, but, you know, you look at the stupid little stuffed animal like, that thing's not worth $30,000, which some of them went for. Like, why is that worth $30,000? Because some idiot is willing to pay $30,000 for that. The value of something is what you're willing to pay for it. And God says that the value of human life is so valuable, so high, that nothing on earth can equal it. As believers, we should cherish human life, all human life. I'm not going to talk about the death penalty because God says, man, again, I want to get down these rabbit holes and there is some stipulations here, but we should value people who are sick, the elderly, the homeless, the unborn, the refugee, the immigrant, we should value them because every one of them, all races are made in the image of God and he values them as much as, as he does us. 
The homeless, the poor and hungry, they are valued and loved by God. The abused, the persecuted, they are valued and loved by God. So when we see someone being abused or someone being oppressed unfairly or someone being mistreated, we as believers should be bothered by that and should step up to do something about that because God values human life. We're to live with two agendas in God restarting creation. We are to care for and value creation and cherish and protect human life. Our sin destroyed creation. God could have just wiped it out or started over new with no sin, but he loves creation. He loves humanity. And so he restarted it to restore creation and save humanity. But here's the fourth thing we see, and this one's a little bit difficult. Well, number four, God knew this wouldn't fix sin. Look back at chapter 8, verse 21. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore every living thing as I have done. God knew this wasn't going to fix it. He knew that this wasn't going to work. So why did he do it? Because he was showing us that there is an ultimate answer to our sin that was different. See, destroying the wicked wouldn't work. First of all, that would include everyone, including Noah and his family. Secondly, it wouldn't rid the earth of future evil generations because the problem shows up right after Noah gets it off the ark. Look at chapter 9, verse 20. It says that Noah began to be a husbandman and he planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine that was and was drunken and he was uncovered within his tent and Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his brethren without and Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness and Noah awoke from his uh, wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him so not long after the flood not long after God starts over, Noah gets drunk and his youngest son does something to him. I'm not going to get into what he did. I know what he did. I'm not going to get into it. But it was so sinful that Noah curses him and throws him out of the family. Now, this story isn't included to embarrass Noah. It's included there to show us something important. God restarted creation but the problem's still there god is showing us a need for a different kind of salvation and then of course in genesis 9 13 the bible talks about god putting a bow in the sky and we know that's a rainbow right we all know the rainbow is god's promise to man and for us to see that god's not going to destroy the earth anymore but the word bow there doesn't mean rainbow it means a war bow it was a bow that a, a warrior would use to destroy his enemy. God, what God is saying here is he has laid down his war bow. He is no longer going to accomplish, he's not going to accomplish salvation by shooting arrows of wrath into man. If you look at a rainbow and you see it as an archery bow, where is it pointing? No, it's pointing towards heaven. 
God's not going to shoot his arrows of wrath into man. He's going to take the arrows of wrath into himself for us. He's going to take the punishment that we can't take. That's where we see Jesus in this story. See, Jesus will come one day, like Noah, to save humanity, but he'll do it better. Like Noah, he'll obey God, even though it does, no one understands it. Through his obedience, he will save humanity. But unlike Noah, he's going to succeed all the way to the end. His life doesn't end in sin and shame, but Jesus' life on earth ended with the redemption of mankind for everybody. Like Noah's ark, he shields us from the storm of God's wrath, and he lifts us above the waters of judgment. But unlike Noah's ark, his salvation isn't made of gopher wood. It's made of his body and his blood. Like Noah, he'll emerge from the storm of God's judgment and begin a new creation. But unlike Noah, this new creation will not have hearts that are continually, that are always on evil. We will be a new creation, formed in the image and likeness of God and reflecting his glory. See, God knew that this restart would fail. But in his, he did it so that he could provide a better means of salvation for every one of us. There's two things that we have to ask ourselves when we understand this story. Here's the first thing we have to ask ourselves. Are we in the ark of safety? You know, like the ark in Noah's day, there's only one door. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's only one way of salvation, and it's putting your faith and trust in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sins. And like in Noah's story, you have to go through the door to be safe. You have to go through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be safe from the judgment of God. And like in Noah's day, God won't wait forever. Look, God, God waited 120 years. Why did that take Noah so long to build the ark? Because God was giving other people a chance to repent and turn to him. Why has God not come back yet? Because he's giving the lost a chance to repent and put their faith and trust in him. But he won't wait forever. Eventually, he'll shut the door. And there won't be a chance. You know, Peter, he uses the story of Noah to warn us not to delay in repenting and surrendering to God's salvation. You know, everyone thought Noah was crazy. For 120 years, he planned and prepared for an event that people thought could never happen. Peter says that God waited 120 years to give men a chance to repent, to give them a chance to see their wickedness and confess their sins. Even though it seemed to take forever, God did send judgment. Second Peter says, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise. In some counts, slackness, but he is patient with us. Because he does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The reason God hasn't returned yet is because if you're not saved, he's giving you a chance to repent and come to him for salvation. But maybe you're here and you're like, well, preacher, I'm in the ark. I've been saved. I know, what I, I know where I put my faith in. When, when God's judgment comes, I'm safe. I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. What does this mean for me? It's our job, who are, uh, those of us who are in the ark, 
to warn those who are not. It's our job. We can't just sit in the ark and say, well, we're safe. <laughs> Too bad for them. You think Noah and his, his sons and their wives, when the door was shut and the water was coming and people were banging on the ark, please let us in, let us in. Do you think they were in there going, ha, 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 suckers, they had their chance. No, they were heartbroken because they couldn't do anything. But they tried for 120 years. They warned for 120 years. They did everything they could for 120 years, and then it was too late. Well, I'm safe. I'm saved. I'm in the ark. Great. God hasn't come back yet. You know what that means? We have to warn others. We have to preach the gospel, have to send out tracts, have to get involved in missions. We have to do everything we can to warn those who are outside the ark that a flood's coming. Judgment's coming. And it's our job to warn them and get them in the ark. It's our job to bring them to safety. We're to tell everyone because God loves everyone. Well, what about that group over there who they curse God and they hate God and they, they're mean to us? God loves them and died for them too and he wants them in the ark just like he wants you. Doesn't matter who they are. Well, but they're, they're, they're cursing God and whatever. God still loves them. Well, but they're weird. They're strange. I, well, have you ever looked in the mirror? You're weird and strange. Bible says God gathers the outcasts of Israel together. You an outcast. But God loves everybody. Those that hate him. Those that don't believe in him. Those that live a life that we don't agree with. God loves them just as much as he loves you. And it's your job to warn them. So this morning, are you in the ark? If not, come in before the door shuts. You are? Great. Warn everyone you can before the door shuts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.